Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Not since the 1960s have we lived in a time of more public anger. Today, issues of race, economic disparity, power imbalance, and distrust of traditional institutions have all conflated to bring us to what some believe is the brink of insurrection. But should we be surprised? Insurrection, riots, strikes have long been an instrument of policy for the disaffected. It was a central form of protest in the 17th and 18th centuries, and we saw our own examples in the 60s and 70s. But given the anger, given technology, given the immediacy of communication, what might riots look like today, and are they on the horizon? We're going to talk about this with my guest, Joshua Clover. He's a professor of literature and critical theory at the University of California, Davis. He's widely published as an essayist, poet, and cultural theorist, and it is my pleasure to welcome Joshua Clover here to talk about his book, Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. What constitutes a riot? What What should we look at as, as sort of the model of what riots have been politically? That's a great question, uh, in part because it's been a source of real historical confusion. Often people want to define riots according to sort of violence and disorder, uh, in fact, that's often what the legal code looks like, uh, you know, an act of uh, public disorder involving violence that involves three or six or 12 people. Uh, it's a tough distinction to make because it allows us to forget that historically strikes have often been extremely violent. Uh, if we think about the Colorado Coalfield Wars, the Lovell Massacre, things like this. Uh, Probably, historically, over the course of the last, I don't know, eight centuries, the real distinction has been that riots involve people struggling more or less in the marketplace, because that's where they need to go to survive over the price of things, and strikes involve people struggling in the, you know, the factory, the place of work, over the price of their labor, uh, how much they're going to get paid for it. And that distinction has worked very well for centuries. In the present, the, the current age that you uh, sort of began to describe in your introduction, that gets complicated by the fact that most of the riots that we see get described as race riots, right? Which is a, a very difficult term since it allows us to uh, ignore that most of these race riots from 1880 to 1955 were white people attacking communities of color. But that really changes in the 60s, and we get this new category of race riots, often involving African-American communities. So we have these two traditions in our history to, to sort of sum up. The riot historically is a struggle over people's capacity to survive in the marketplace when they don't have jobs as places to struggle. And uh, riots are struggles in... Uh, sort of marginalized communities, often often race, racialized communities in the United States. And these two things come together in the present, right, where you have communities where there's huge unemployment because unemployment strikes uh, black people, Latinos, Latinas first. So you have places where people are pushed into the market out of work uh, and, uh, you know, racialized communities. And that's exactly where you're going to get riots over and over again. And that's what we're seeing more and more. And in fact, it is almost a kind of perfect storm because as you talk about historically, race and economics lie at the core of this and that we're at this inflection point right now where both of these two issues have created a, a huge amount of disaffection. 
I think that's right. A huge amount of disaffection and a huge amount of response, you know, after the, the U.S. economy actually goes through a real crisis in the early 1970s, uh, from which in many ways, to be honest, it's never really recovered except for a series of bubbles. And because since that time, it's been unable to really increase employment opportunities, and indeed they've gotten worse for many people, uh, you get a situation where one of the ways that black communities get managed is by more and more intense policing, you know, what we call hyper-incarceration, especially here in California, the, the the rates of incarcerating black young you know, young black men are are, are staggering, uh, and in that situation, that's just going to intensify a sense in those communities of not just misery but of constant threat, constant violence from the police, from the state, and that just only magnifies this what you call a perfect storm. Did organized labor as an institution at its peak? Did it take some of the some of the energy off the the need for rioting and create a a more structural outlet for it? Uh, you know, I think that's right. I think that the riot, you know, and the strike blend into each other. When we see the historical change from the first era of riot, which begins to wane around eighteen hundred or so, and the rise of the strike, which really begins in the Western world in the early 19th century, they sort of start to blend into each other and, and actually they're a bit hard to tell apart. So you get these things where workers will storm down to the boss's office and break in and uh, seize the documents and shatter the windows and sort of hold the boss hostage. And it looks very riotous, right? It looks very disordered, very um, sort of threatening and potentially violent. Uh, but the demands they're making are what we would recognize now from a strike. They want higher wages, better working conditions. Uh, and it takes a while for the riot to really, excuse me, for the strike to really clarify itself out as this clearly different thing with this sort of somewhat more um, organized, you know, we're going to down our tools, we're going to march in a picket line. So it's absolutely the case that they blend into each other. And my understanding is this is even more true across the globe. If you look at, let's say, China, which has a lot of aggressive labor activity, I'm not an expert in this, but from what I you know, have, have come to learn, the, the distinction between a riot and a strike is very hard to make. The strike often spills out into the street and involves open fighting with the police. And that's happened here in the U.S. as well. To what extent historically have these strikes slash riots been about drawing attention to themselves from outside of, of whatever the particular struggle is, and how might that be different as we look at them today in this 24-7 media landscape? Yeah, that seems to me like a, a crucial question. I, I appreciate your asking it. I think there's always been a double tendency in these events. You know, on the one hand, they absolutely want to draw attention. They want to garner media support. They want to draw people to the cause. Uh, this is true of both strikes and riots. They have spokespeople. They articulate themselves to try and seize the high moral ground. And then you have a, an element in, in both the strike and the riot that is more interested in sort of generating immediate practical consequences, you know, whether in the case of a, of a strike, you know, shutting down the factory and making sure they can't produce, or in the case of a riot, fighting the police or... or trying to mark out a neighborhood for a particular community and make it unwelcoming to the outsiders. Uh, so those aspects, on the one hand, attempting to garner some sort of 
you know, uh, support by strategies of communication and, and imagery and, and, the tact, and the sort of the attempts to take care of practical tasks have, have always existed. And certainly the, the, the domination of mass media and um, sort of instant media has made that sense that, you know, the world is watching, we need to get our message out, uh, very powerful. But it, it, the, you know, the, there's a limit to that, and it's important to note that, which is the strategy of sort of media appeal and uh, cause, giving your movement greater visibility and, and sort of a, a seeming sympathy. That works only if you can use it to make demands that can be met for social reforms or kinds of social spending. And if you're in a situation where there's not a lot of money or will to meet those demands, it's unclear what a media strategy can do. You can be the most appealing, uh, you know, social movement in the world, but if you ask for a complete transformation of, of uh, you know, how, how, how housing is distributed or what jobs look like, it's not clear that the economy can meet that demand. And that's the real limit for these media strategies. There's also the danger of, of the flip side of calling attention to itself, which is that it can create a backlash, as we've seen with some racially motivated riots and, and, and other riots that have taken place in a more contemporary setting. Yeah, well, there's always going to be a backlash. Any sort of militant social movement that demands that the world should be different is going to uh, be met with great, great resistance, of course, both from the state, but also from, you know, a lot of the population. We live in an interesting time, but a challenging time. You know, I'm of the generation that's going to be the first downwardly mobile generation in the history of the nation, right? It already has been. There's a, there's a middle class, insofar as it still exists, that has a great sense of its own precarity, that it's losing ground, not gaining ground, that the, the world is going to get worse and worse. And one response an understandable one is a desire to cling on even more intensely. And when some, you know, mass movement shows up and says, well, we'd like to change how things are arranged and redistribute stuff, this very anxious middle class, naturally, uh, for some fraction of it, there's going to be a very angry, almost panicky uh, backlash to that. I think we see that around the Donald Trump insurgency, not necessarily him himself, but the people who are supportive of him, who are, you know, op- openly racist, openly um, sort of, you know, extraordinarily sort of hostile and, and um, thuggish. I think that comes out of this, this sense of, a, of a, the collapsing position of the middle class. It's interesting because on the one hand, so many of these riots historically have a political basis, and yet there is something anti-political about the very nature of riots. Uh, that's a good a sort of test case or question. Certainly that's how riots get read, um, if we can think of them as something that's legible at all. Mm-hmm. People think like, oh, this couldn't possibly be political because I know what politics is. It involves asking for this or organizing in this way, and they're not doing that. They're just running around and destroying things. And that's almost our definition of not being political. That's not how I see history. I see this as uh, a fundamental political act. I see that you know, going down to the marketplace in 1650 and saying, we're forced to make our way in the world by buying things in the marketplace. We can't afford that. And so we're going to go down here and change how much things cost. So 
so that we can afford to survive. That's maybe the most fundamental political act available to humans. And so when someone loots a grocery store during a riot, for most people that's an act of pure disorder and lawlessness and, and a mistake because you lose the high moral ground if you engage in that kind of activity. For me, that's the most basic political act is looting, right? It's saying, like, we, we're trying to stay alive. We're taking the steps we need to to stay alive. They're not being afforded us by the current arrangement of things. So for me, it's not so much that these riots are anti-political, but that the, they're, they're very clear and straightforward politics often do not want to be recognized by a more conventional and conservative, um, you know, powers that be. The other question that grows out of that is whether riots and or strikes, when they're the most effective, are they planned or are they spontaneous, and, and what difference that makes? Well, you're really asking the big, complicated questions here. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a little of both. There's certainly this, this moment when it feels utterly spontaneous that no one could have predicted it. You, do, you don't know... Um, that there's, that there's going to be a riot and there is one. Although by now, in the United States, we have a pretty good sense, right? You read in the paper that Michael Brown has been shot by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, and you have a pretty good sense that this might lead to a riot. It's a classic sequence that we see now is a black kid gets killed by the cops, and especially then the cops don't get indicted, and there's going to be riots. But it's not... It, you're, you're right. There, there's no central committee that sits down and you know, makes charts and draws up plans and assigns tasks uh, in, in that way. At the same time, you know, many interesting historians, I think of Robin D.G. Kelly, for example, have done really significant work talking about, for example, the kinds of community organizing that were happening in uh, poor Los Angeles in the 1960s that, that uh, formed a sense of social, a, a set of social bonds and arrangements and groups that already existed when the moment of the Watts riots comes in 1965. So they already sort of have these cohesions and, and alliances and friendships in place that make the riot and the spread of the riot possible. So I think it's a mix of the two, to be honest. It's interesting to think about it also in terms of place and and the quote-unquote acceptability of riots. You know, you mentioned Watts riots, which arguably sort of set the stage in some ways or gave permission to the Rodney King riots when they happened because L.A. had that, that, that history of riots. There are some places that seem more susceptible than others. Well, that's, that's certainly true. L.A.'s tradition... We should also include the Zoot Suit riots mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the 1940s and, and many various other ones we tend not to remember. As soon as you start to do the research, you discover there's far more riots than you could possibly imagine. I think in the present, since the 60s, the real, this real sort of new age of, of, of riots, of which Watts is one of the really initiating or you know, first, first examples. By 1967, you have 160 so-called race riots in the U.S., uh, 1968, almost the same amount. I think there's other local determinations, and you're right, the tradition of Los Angeles, how people think of themselves there, um, the the collapse of these post-industrial cities like Detroit, like Baltimore, these are absolutely places that make the riot far more likely, in fact, I would say almost guaranteed. As you look at the present landscape, how ripe do you see it today for, for what we're talking about? 
well, I think there's no way but there's going to be more and more riots. That, that, I think people who write books of predictions are probably fools, and I may be in that category. Uh, but it seems to me, you know, we see this shift from, from strike to riot in the 60s and 70s, and since the late 70s, an ascending number of riots, it does seem, does seem pretty strongly related to this restructuring of the economy and deindustrialization, uh, which sort of pushes people into the market without jobs, and that's when you get riots. And that tendency, right, is continues to increase. Unemployment goes up and down, but it's never going to return to it. The employment levels will never return to what they, what they were in the 1950s. It's not possible. Um, the great absorption of, you know, everyone was sort of kicked out of agriculture when that mm-hmm. industry was revolutionized, was absorbed by the, by the industrialization in the United States. Now, as industrialization passes, there's no place for those workers to go. There's only so many service jobs. And so they become surplus population, as we say, excluded from the formal economy. That's increasing, that's ongoing, and that guarantees us an increase in riots. There's simply uh, no other foreseeable future. When one looks at the history of riots, as you have, how effective have they been as a political instrument? That depends how you measure effectiveness, right? Uh, in terms of winning kinds of concessions and reforms, they seem fairly effective in situations when the government could afford to purchase the social peace, as we say, when it could, it could buy the riot off. Uh, and, you know, they get less effective in that sense as that becomes less possible. So the great wave of riots in the 60s, after which uh, Lyndon Johnson commissions the so-called Kerner Report, mm-hmm. at the time a very famous document, which essentially says, you know, at that time they still used the language of the ghetto. I said, you know, well, here's the, here's the problems in the ghetto, and here's how we need to address this, and these sort of vast pro- pro- series of proposals, none of which get implemented in a, in a serious way. Because uh, it just doesn't seem to be possible or affordable at the time. And that remains the case. So in that sense, in terms of uh, negotiated reforms, I don't think the riot can be very effective. In terms of moving toward a situation in which uh, it's understood that, that we cannot continue to have a society organized in the way it's currently organized with this astonishing inequality, imbalance, immiseration, exclusion. In that sense, I think riots will prove to be increasingly effective as, you know, uh, as seismographs, as ways of understanding that we can't go on the way we're going. Joshua Clover, his book is Riot, Strike, Riot, The New Era of Uprisings. Joshua, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you so much uh, for having me and for your thoughtful questions. Thank you.